Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Physician Associate Podcast. My name is James and today I'm delighted to be joined by a very special guest. Welcome to the show, Helen Stokes-Lempard. Hi, great to be here. Thanks so much for joining me on the episode today. I've invited you on in your capacity as chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. And thank you so much for coming on. As well as that, you're also a GP and wear several other hats as well, don't you? Yeah, thank you, James. So I chair this body called the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, which I tend to explain as being probably the most important medical organisation that most healthcare professionals have never heard of. It's the umbrella body for all the medical colleges, royal colleges and faculties that allow doctors to qualify to become consultants or GPs. So there are 24 of them in total. And to be head of that organisation, you first have to have led one of those 24 organisations. So from 2016 to 2019, I was chair of the Royal College of GPs, which is the largest of the medical royal colleges. Um, And both these have been absolutely fascinating jobs. But I've remained a GP partner throughout all this. In fact, I've been a partner for 20, 21 years now. But I'm also a professor of GP education at the University of Birmingham. Although I don't do a lot of that at the moment, I'll be going back to that when my current role finishes. Um, I'm the founder and chair of a charity called the National Academy for Social Prescribing, which is of relevance, of course, in community practice and general practice. Um, And I'm a trustee of Macmillan Cancer. I do a few of the bits and pieces. That's enough to be getting on with, certainly for today. Bless you. How on earth do you cram all of that in? (laughs) (laughs) Could I start by asking you just to set the scene a little bit about your experience of physician associates and how you've heard of the profession and perhaps worked with PAs? Must be 10 years ago, James, when I was an officer at the Royal College of GPs, this conversation started happening about work that was going on in the States and use of anaesthesia associates in hospitals um, and how there was clearly a role for these in primary care. At the same sort of time, University of Birmingham, uh, Jim Pahl, who I believe has also been a guest on the podcast, um, was a professor that I worked alongside in the University of Birmingham. And Jim was talking a lot about it and setting up a PA training programme in the University of Birmingham. So I was aware of it at sort of an important but sort of not hands-on level. Uh, And then conversations started building. And certainly towards the late 2010s, when I was chair of the College of GPs, when the recruitment challenges we had in general practice became very acute. And there was a huge change in attitude by GPs and their teams about widening the healthcare professional team and what who else was out there who could help us deliver care to the vast numbers of patients we deal with in the community. And a huge upswing in interest um, and appreciation of what PAs could offer. So when I was lobbying very hard to get huge increased investment into general practice, um, they were one of the professions that we were seeking to get funding for more of. Um, And so indeed, in 2019, when the NHS England long term plan was launched with the biggest increase in investment in primary care in the history of the NHS, PAs featured in that alongside many other professionals we had. Uh, care coordinators, we had physios or MSK professionals into general practice, we had uh, paramedics, community pharmacists, uh, and and social prescribing link workers. There was a whole bundle. And and my experience has been once people have tried working with a PA, they love it and never want to go back from it. Um, But it's dipping a toe in the water and embrace. And the same applies to embracing any new uh, professional in your team. First of all, you've got to work out how is this going to fit where there wasn't a PA-shaped space in my team before. Suddenly, it's working out the space, giving them support, embedding them within your team, and then allowing them to flourish. The embedding is something that is not unique to PAs. 
No, absolutely. I think the PA profession itself is growing quite rapidly. And perhaps we'll touch on this later in the podcast episode, but sometimes that has caused a bit of friction um, between us and some of our medical colleagues. I know that's a part and parcel of being a bit of disruptive in a, as a, if PAs are seen as a disruptor to the norm. Um, but And is that something you experience particularly in general practice or does that apply right across the landscape? You know, the sort of the anaesthesia, the uh, secondary care medical associate? Yeah, I suspect it probably is uh, across the board. Um, certainly looking on social media recently, things have been a little bit heated uh, in some of the arguments um, where doctors feel perhaps that their training numbers and posts are a bit threatened. I'm truly saddened to hear that because that strikes me as a misunderstanding of the wider landscape and the funding that's been allocated and that will follow. Um, we are short of all flavours of healthcare professional. Um, and certainly we need far more doctors. Of course we do. And to have more doctors, we need more training places. That's an absolute given. Every one of the medical colleges would agree with that. But also there is a recognition that there are roles that can be done just as well by many other healthcare professionals. And doctors are an expensive resource to be doing everything. And actually working as part of a multidisciplinary team means working at who is best placed to provide care to our patients and allocating and working accordingly. And just like an orchestra, when it works well, the sound that comes out is magnificent. But it can, it's very easy to make it discordant if you're not quite sure who should be doing what and when. So it does require good clinical leadership to help make this happen. And I think you're right about disruption. And disruption can be difficult and takes time. For me, there's something about hand-holding. And when you know money came in from the big new contract in 2019, which is still flowing through, we've just entered the fifth year of that five-year agreement with the ramping up of the R's re, uh, money. And actually, I'm not sure that enough time and money was spent on the handholding to show people what good could look like, um, to help people learn from exemplars elsewhere, because there are so many people who are completely converted to this brilliant way of working. Trainees feeling threatened is likely to be symptomatic of much wider issues that trainees are feeling. Trainees have undoubtedly had a really torrid time of it, so medical doctor trainees. Obviously, we all know the junior doctor's industrial action uh, has been ongoing and has been painful at so many levels for so many people. But interestingly, and that's a conversation that's been polarised about money, this is a conversation about training places or access to training. But there are lots of other issues which trainees are feeling hard done by. A lot of them is about how they're feeling valued or not being valued. And the way we look after and support them, the structures that used to be there have gone. And often these are have been short-term monetary gains for the system at substantial long-term costs. So whilst I'm desperately sorry to hear about what's been happening and said in social media, I would take that as symptomatic of a wider different set of problems rather than anything personal um and i'm truly sorry to hear it i do gently say to people that remember what you post in social media is there for life um you know you can have a private conversation with somebody and it's been and it's gone and only the two of you will have a memory of what's said once something is in social media it is there forever even if you try and delete it there will be a memory of it and we are all professionals and we all have to live with those um what we have done and said uh, you know in the online world, virtual world. Uh, and I think that's really quite sobering. Wouldn't have put it better myself. Thank you, Hannah. <laughs> I think that's a, a really good way of phrasing it. And I don't want to inflame the situation anymore. I think that's a good reminder for the, for everybody. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that part of the attraction of being a PA to me is that sort of blue sky thinking in terms of how my career can develop. 
I know for the doctors, uh, it's very structured. Like you say, the Royal Colleges of GPs have their exams that you have to go through the different training steps to become a GP. Same for all of the Royal Colleges, emergency medicine, etc. For PAs, that doesn't exist yet, necessarily. One of the topics that comes up amongst my PA friends quite frequently is, well, once we're qualified, what comes next for PAs? And just wondered perhaps what your thoughts are um, on sort of post graduate qualifications for PAs um, in in that space. James, thank you. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Professional development is vital for all healthcare professionals. I mean, it's part of being a professional is our ongoing development. One of the sort of things that defines a profession. So you have professional body to support you. Professional bodies like that are important because they help in terms of identity and they help in terms of uh, the discussion about ongoing professional development. And and I do think there are lessons to be learned from doctors and nurses in terms of what good professional development and what box ticking bureaucratic professional development can look like. So I would urge you to look at, so, so for example, and all this will become much more uh, important to clarify once you get to the point of registration. So, you know, we're all working to, to, the, uh, to you being a regulated profession. We know that the GMC is going to hold, it's going to be the registering body. Um, and that's great. They're very established. They've got processes. They're a bit pop bound with legal stuff at the moment, but there should be major uh, improvements to the legal framework around the GMC in the next couple of years. That's been promised and that should help. Um, but I, think in terms of the professional development there's a lot that's already been done so I would say look to what's already been done learn from those who've had painful experiences it's very easy for continuing professional development or appraisal uh, and revalidation to become a box ticking exercise which demeans all of us um my suggestions would be that whatever is agreed should be um, professionally determined so what does the individual think they need? What is the individual in con- in conversation with their line manager and their employer think is necessary and appropriate? And from that, there will become a consensus as to the sort of clusters of things that PAs would be would find it helpful to do. Now, you know, there are going to be there are going to be some things that everybody needs to do, which is to be you know clinically up to date with meaningful changes. So, in general practice, that's going to mean you know the main disease groups, the treatment modalities, and the investigations that are going on. But it's likely to be that some PAs sort of take go off in slightly different routes. So some are likely to take on practical procedures. Others are likely to get involved in education training. And it's working out what is appropriate. In some things, it'll be looking at what doctors or advanced uh, nurses are doing already in this space and saying, well, there's no point reinventing the wheel. This is already there. This looks perfect for our needs, whether it's lift and shift or rebranding or something. Um, but there'll be other things that may well need to be bespoke. And Having a professional organisation, a body like your faculty is actually comes into its own at a time like that because they have the convening power to get voices from all different sectors and all different geographies together. What it's showing to me is, you know, we've got this Academy for Medical Royal Colleges, which brings all the colleges together. And nurses, for example, have one enormous organisation, the Royal College of Nursing, which acts as both a trades union and a professional development body and has all within it. And Actually, in medicine, you know, the BMA is very separate from doctors. And so there is, for me, something for you about your union membership as well. And is there one obvious union that you may wish to join or be part of to represent all of you? Because the problem is when you're part of five or six different trades unions, it's where the power and strength comes. So there's, there's, there's different things to think about here as well. Sorry, that wasn't professional development. That was in terms and conditions. But I think it's 
it's part of the same conversation about professionalizing as you move forward. Perfect. Thank you. Yes, definitely food for thought as the uh, profession develops in, in in the coming years. Some Royal Colleges have been very, very proactive. I'm thinking about the Royal College of Psychiatrists have been hugely positive about PAs and have embraced PAs and have put out documentation about career progression and those sorts of things. Other Royal Colleges, perhaps there are fewer PAs in in their subspecialties, so that's not such a priority for them. But do you think the Royal Colleges will look in the future perhaps to take PAs under their wing or will that be kept separate with doctors and PAs, do you think? I honestly don't know, James. I think there is a live discussion going on with the colleges about who should be in and who should be out. They were set up by doctors for doctors uh, is the starting point. And interestingly, when the academy has been approached by um, organisations of health care professionals who aren't doctors and asked to join, um, the colleges up until now have said, no, no, we are by doctors for doctors. Um, And... I personally feel that we are so much stronger as healthcare professionals when we collaborate. So for me, what I then do is have association with various organisations so that we can speak up with one voice. If there's something going on, you know, I'll reach out to Royal College of Midwives or Royal College of Nurses or whoever. Um, but I think for individual colleges, this is a really important moment in time because many this this doesn't just apply interestingly to um, physician associates. And this also applies. There are um, doctors are called called locally employed doctors who are doctors who are not doctors in training, and that's training to become a consultant or a GP, but they are employed by trusts uh, to deliver service, and they don't naturally fit within the college's historical structure. So they are all they're also foundation doctors who are before the point they get into official training programs, and there are these are two important groups of doctors who aren't necessarily feeling loved and supported by colleges. And this is a massive wasted opportunity for both the individuals and the colleges. And I think PAs are in that similar sort of space as the where's our natural home. And when you are very much allied to one clinical discipline, it is logical that you have a professional home alongside the people you work with. So my suggestion would be that clusters of PAs, you know, so if you're PAs, I don't know, pick a special, let's say Ops and Gynae, first one off the top of my head, uh, that you reach out to the college if you don't feel that there's already a space and say, look, is there a way we can collaborate, whether that's a memorandum of understanding, whether that's some sort of affiliate status whereby you can work together, learn together, develop together so that for mutual understanding and respect. For me, I think that's really important because for doctors to trust PAs as a profession, I think that having that uh, accreditation having that formal approval from royal college saying you are of a standard you know whether that's an exam or an assessment of competence or something uh, might help smooth relations between pas and doctors things are changing in the medical workforce and i think change is inevitable it has changed through the decades when you look at what was there before it looks nothing like what there is now and i'm sure in the future it will change again with that comes things like apprenticeships and new ways into careers. Is that something that you're working on? Is that something that you're interested in developing further? Yeah, it, it's really interesting. You're right. Change is, is always happening. That's the one constant that we've had in the last 75 years of the NHS is that it's never been static. And um, so specifically, and in the news at the moment about the time we're recording this podcast, there's been a lot of talk about uh 
doctors qualifying via the apprenticeship route. Um, there's also been a bit of misunderstanding in the way the media has reported it, which has suggested that doctors won't have anything to do with a university to get their medical qualification. That's clearly not true. To qualify as a doctor in the UK and be registered with a GMC, you have to hit certain standards and it's a, it's a high level degree qualification and that will remain. And what will change via the apprentice route to medicine um, is that people will continue to have other jobs in parallel. So just like an apprentice, you'll be salaried doing something whilst you're also learning on the job. But you will have to be affiliated to your university. You will have to do exit assessments that are of a sufficient standard so that the degree you get via the apprentice route will be absolutely comparable to the degree you get via traditional medical school route. We're seeing uh, nursing apprenticeships really taking off similarly. And it seemed logical to me that physician associates would go down the same route with apprenticeship training. Totally logical. And I be supported. When uh, you, you talked earlier about um, some concern and trepidation from trainees um, about uh, working with PAs generally and training uh, pathways and competition, when we look at apprenticeship training for doctors, there was a lot of concern and anxiety when this was first mooted because there wasn't clarity about some of those things I've started with, i.e. it is degree level, the standards are exactly the same, the output has to be comparable. And indeed, there's a new medical licensing assessment, which will be commonly taken by every person who qualifies as a doctor in the UK starting from next year. It's been a long time coming. We've been building up to this for 10 years. And this sort of thing is a way of ensuring that things are standardised and, and having a regulator like the GMC to ensure that consistently is important. Um, the doctor apprenticeships are starting as of this autumn, all being well, um, with three main pilots. The likelihood is that will then get expanded in due course. In the same way for PAs, this isn't something to be feared. This is just create, creative new ways of doing things, which hopefully will be more inclusive to allow those who are perhaps have already got other jobs, who financially just cannot afford to take five years out to train to do something, uh, but allow them to continue to earn whilst they learn. And I think that's for the betterment of the whole health service. Thank you. There is a episode of the podcast um, all about the doctor's apprenticeship route, and there's one already out about the PA apprenticeship route. So if people are interested in finding out a bit more about them, they'll be able to listen back to those episodes. James, it sounds as if I need to listen to those myself. Thank you. What would you like to see happen in the future, just in terms of the PA profession and how that develops along with the medical profession? What do you see perhaps the, the near future and the long term future looking like? So I think in the short term, we just need to work on the relationship building and the knowing one another uh, because when we know each other, we work best together. Um, so I think there is something about sharing of good practice, sharing of experiences and moving forward. So I'm not looking for revolution. I'm looking for gradual ongoing evolution. Uh, I think we all need to be pushing quite firmly to get the registration piece done, because until we've got registration, as you know, prescribing can't follow until this is a regulated profession. And that is holding back PAs, I feel. And so, so, so I think that's the sort of the, the, so the short emergency we can all get behind, plus the continuing to build. I think once we get past that then there is looking to the future as to what other potential there is what's the appetite for people to train as a PA and what's the appetite for the system to creatively use PAs and give them career development opportunities that are best I mean you know we touched earlier on um, PAs as educators I and mean, there's something really important there um, there's PAs in their own right and their own discipline and how that discipline evolves over time, what what routes could be taken that haven't been explored yet. 
But I think there's also a big education piece with the public about helping the public understand what PAs are. I mean, you know, if it's taking healthcare professionals time to get our heads around it, it's even much more confusing for the public. And I think a really big awareness campaign is necessary in the medium term uh, so that people understand the whole, you know, I talked about the flavours of healthcare professionals or the the different pieces of the orchestra. Um, the only piece, you know, reason great music works is when you've got all the different pieces, all the different instruments playing together. And What a wonderful way to put it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure listening to this episode may have sparked off ideas or given people pause for thought, um, and they may have comments about physician associates working with doctors, concerns about PAs and doctors training, that kind of thing. Where would you point people to go to find out more or express their concerns? Well, I guess the first thing is your faculty. I mean, I think, you know, your own membership body is meant to be your best place, the first place to collate ideas and views and get it out there. Um, and I don't know what sort of state they are in terms of their relationships and, and their openness to that sort of feedback. I would imagine my experiences with them a few years ago were very positive. Um, but if that doesn't satisfy, then there's nothing to stop you reaching out via the healthcare professionals or doctors you work with. So if you work in general practices and they're a cluster of you and you want to approach the Royal College of GPs, then write to them, see what you, where you get. Likewise, anesthesia or surgical or whatever. But I think there is power in being groups of people writing. And, and certainly individuals can write and that's fine. But there is more power when there's a collective voice. So get you, get get together, um, clarify your thinking, clarify your thoughts. And for me, it's always about people presenting solutions, not just problems. Um, it, for all of us, it's so easy to complain and moan. But if you go to people and say, complain, moan, here's a couple of potential solutions, that's such a constructive way to engage with somebody. Um, and I say this to doctors all the time, you know, of course, we all need safe spaces to let off steam and to, to vent our concerns. But if we can vent our concerns and in a safe space and then in public we articulate those in a constructive way with potential solutions we are then part of the solution not merely amplifying the problem brilliant helen thank you so much i really appreciate you coming on the podcast it's been great to chat james thanks ever so much and thank you for all that you're doing to spread the great work and thank you for your educational work and helping the pa PAs move forward in a really great way. And thanks to you for listening as well. I hope you found that a really interesting episode to find out a bit more about the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. If you've got ideas for a future episode of the PA Podcast, I'd love to hear from you. I'm on social media at PA Podcast UK, and I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Physician Associate Podcast.